Good evening, all. My name is Michael Atoli, also known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger. I'll be here at Emetian Podcast. We love shameless plugs. On behalf of my partners, I welcome you to the 24th episode of Emetian Podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have much to cover with a very special guest on hand to illuminate us on all things Mets. So without further ado, I'll bring on my podcast partners in Mets banter. First, the proprietor of our podcast, the chief executive opinionator of this operation, Sam Maxwell, everybody. I like the uh, – uh... The other way of saying CEO, uh, you know, I'm, I, I appreciate that, Mike, and, and I couldn't do it without the two of you. So, uh, pat on the backs to all of us. Uh, brush our shoulders off. <laughs> That's it. Next in, our fellow partner here at Emetian Podcast, our president of Baseball Opinions. Uh, you can get him on Twitter, uh, known as Mets Killing Me, Rich Sparago. Welcome, my friend. Well, thank you, Mike, and um, it's a pleasure, as always, to be talking Mets baseball with you two fine gentlemen. Um, You know, just something to ponder would be that, are you aware that the season is 20% over already? I mean, that just struck me. Um, So basically, just let's think about that as we go through. You know, we do these all winter long, and we actually wait the season, and it seems to me like we've blinked our eyes, and it's already 20% in the books, but... The bright side is there's 80% to go. To that, I will say time flies when you're having fun. Sam, what say you? Yeah, that's remarkable to me. I mean, that's just, I guess, the way life goes, is that all of a sudden you're 20, uh, and and childhood, you, you, you think to yourself that you're happy that childhood has, has gone by and that you now finally get to do what you've been seeing all those adults do. And then all of a sudden, uh, you're 80, and you're you're talking about the uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers that moved away 60 years ago. So there's there's a it, it's just that's one of the reasons why sports and especially baseball is such a metaphor for life. So you just got to soak it up and enjoy the good times, like today. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if you missed it, you know, catch me and Sam on. Uh, his podcast, his creation, Bedford and Sullivan. I'll let him give you the details later. And before we get into any Metsian subject matter, uh, Sam, I'll defer to you. Why don't you go ahead and uh, tease this evening's uh, special guest? Well, we're very happy to have uh, the Newsday Mets reporter Tim Healy on, and uh, he's you know he's on the front lines with this team. Uh, and, and it's going to be really, really awesome to hear his insight about the 2019 New York Mets. Without a doubt, without a doubt. All right, uh, let, let's keep things general for now. We'll get into meteor matters once Tim joins us. The Mets are 16 and 15. Uh, they played an afternoon game. Thor, Nelson Degard pitched an absolute gem. Uh, that said, you know, let's talk about the month that was, actually, you know, March and April, and the series that was against Cincinnati. To that, I will just throw in these little tidbits. Uh, we played our National League East foes, all of them. We are 500, uh, an 8-8 eight and eight record versus Atlanta, Washington, and Philadelphia. And, you know, let's throw Miami in there. We're 3-0 and oh against them. And it's important that we continue beating up on, on, on their situation. Uh, they're four and six in their last ten games. 
They went 15 and 14 March slash April. Uh, and I'll throw this last bit out there. At the present time, they have a minus 19 run differential. Yet the offense is what's keeping this team afloat because we know we have pitching issues. We have major bullpen issues and, and inconsistencies out of the starting rotation. Although there is a glimmer of hope over the last week that the starting rotation is starting to turn around. Uh, that said, we also still have defensive issues. So all that said, Rich, take it away, my friend. Well, you know, 20% in, as I said earlier, it isn't a lot, but it's also not 10 games, right? So they played 31 games, and um, when you think about that, what what have we learned? You know, if you listen to the games on the radio, at the end of every game they say, what have we learned? Brought to you by, you know, some particular college. I don't remember which one. And I can't say we've learned anything at this point. I think the jury is still really squarely out on this team because, let's face it, the pitching staff, I mean, for all intents and purposes, cannot stay where it is. I mean, they're, they're too good for that. So you, they've been bad. You have to think they will get better. Uh, the bullpen has been a huge disappointment. You know, I thought the remade bullpen would be very good. So where's that going to go? Don't know. Um, the bats, you know, at one point they were averaging six runs a game. Of course, they haven't hit, hit anything, the, the, the broadside of a bar in the past few days. But the bats, as you said, Mike, were keeping them in the game. So that's probably not sustainable. So, so what I'm saying is every aspect of the game doesn't seem to be sustainable. So the question is, will the real New York Mets stand up, the 2019 New York Mets stand up? And I don't think they have yet. So I can't tell you at this point that I feel like they're a playoff contender, they're a 500 team, they're significantly below 500 team. Because, again, no trend has emerged that you could say that, that there, that's sustainable. They're really all over the place. And so I don't think we've learned anything yet. And I just think it's more of the season will have to unfold to get a real feel for who this team really is. Sam, like Rich says, you know, X amount of the season is through. How you feeling? They're all over the place. I think Rich hit the nail on the head. It, it sounds like uh, uh, my plot of life right now. Um, it, it's, you know, they're as scatterbrained as ever. Uh, every time that the, the pitching seems to come around, the offense crashes. Uh, all of a sudden, the other night with DeGrom, we're getting flashbacks to 2018 and, and the fact that he never got any run support. Uh, while the offense is going crazy, we're winning games 7-6 to six or losing games 7-6 to six, uh, because the pitching can't get their, their stuff together. So, I, I, you know, I really can't add more than what Rich did. It, will the real New York Mets please stand up? They're, they're, uh, right, as of right now, Looking, especially like looking at some of the other teams and the fact that like the Phillies are hanging on right now uh, uh, in first place without Gene Segura. And considering what they've gone through without a Bryce Harper uh, uh, hitting 270, he's, you know, I don't think he's doing as badly as that, that article tried to make it look like from the post the other day because he got booed by Philadelphia. I, I uh, uh, took the pulse of a, a Phillies fan uh, friends that I have, and apparently he brings energy to the club. Uh, the fan base is pumped. He gets everybody pumped. So it, it it seems like it's the trendy thing always 
to write the, about the negative right now because it's going to get clicked. And especially when, you know, you're talking about another market who's trying to hear some bad things about the team that's ahead of them. So, you know, I think right now the plus for the Mets is the fact that nobody is running away with this division. The concern for the Mets is that they can't find any consistency. But we've been talking about this basically for their entire history, that there's no consistency. They leave too many runners on base. The LOB, I just wish they'd figure out a way to get these left on bases down because they've been doing this since 1962. Uh, Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing, who frequents this podcast a lot, he once wrote an article about, and I think it was during the 2012 season in July when everything was falling apart, as it tends to do. Uh, he was writing about how the 1962 Mets, who have the most losses in modern baseball history, uh, had the a crazy amount of times in the ninth inning. They either had the tying run uh, at the plate, the winning run at the plate, or on deck or something like that, and they would lose. And it's, this, it's the LOB that is going to kill you over the long run. And hopefully this franchise can figure it out one day, somehow, some way, even if it kind of plays into the idea of hope that you always have to believe. It, you know, I, 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 you, you need to get those runners in. That's the bottom line. There's nothing else I can add. How about if I put this spin on it? Uh, somewhere in between what you and Rich said, check this out. If the Mets were in the West, they'd be in fourth place. If they were in the Central, they'd be in fourth place. Right now, they're in third place, I believe, uh, in the East. I'm looking at baseball reference for that. So if there was a game that changed that, I stand corrected. But my point is only five teams are below 500 at the moment. The Dodgers have 20 victories. The Cardinals have 20 victories. The Phillies, in first place in the East, have 17 victories. And the Mets have 16 victories. So uh, I guess the question here, are the Mets beneficiaries of parity? Rich. Yeah, they probably are, Mike, um, because if you look at the teams in the National League East, and, I'll, and let's focus on that for the moment, um, there really isn't a runaway team. If you look at the Phillies, you could say their starting rotation is thin, and it is. You could say the injury to David Robertson will really hurt them over the long term, which it probably will. You look at the Nationals, their bullpen, I, I, don't, I don't think the bullpen ERA is over eight, but it was a week and a half ago. It's just unbelievable how bad a bullpen can be. We think we have we think we have bullpen problems, right? So there's the Nationals. The Braves overachieved last year. No one will ever convince me otherwise. They're a good team. They're not that good. Uh, they have bullpen issues as well. Then there's the Mets. So you don't have a team in the division that really is solid all around. The Mets are taking advantage of that. Like you said, these teams, the Mets have played them to a draw, and they've played each other to a draw. Um, and that's probably the way, unless somebody something really changes, that's probably the way it'll continue. Uh, the Dodgers, you know, at 20 wins, they, um, you know, the Dodgers 20 wins, they certainly, history's on their side, the last two National League pennants. But, uh, but yeah, I think you're right. I think they, they are benefiting from parity. Uh, Sam, same question. I'll add this, uh, and this backs up everything that Rich just said. National League 
team ERA. Washington is 14th. The Mets are 13th. The Atlanta Braves are 12th. The Philadelphia Phillies are 8th. So the entire National League East, I didn't even throw Miami in there. So the contenders in the National League East, they're all bunched up towards the bottom. Sam. Everybody always says you got to beat up on Miami. You got to beat up on Miami. But no matter how bad Miami seems to be, uh, they're always going to be pesky. You know, like like it's like enjoy patting your your uh, wins when you play Miami. But that just doesn't seem to be the way it goes for at least the New York Mets. And the other day, you know, the Miami Marlins beat Philadelphia three to one in the extra innings. So. I think when it comes to the NL East, parity is certainly the name of the game. It's exactly what everybody said was going to happen, that the four teams are going to beat up on each other. Uh, Some sort of move at some point in this season is probably going to put one of them over the top. And uh, as of now, you know, basically it's it's probably Dallas uh, Keuchel and or uh, Craig Kimbrell is going to go to one of these teams uh, maybe one of the teams gets both of them. Probably not, but that's probably what is going to be the move that puts somebody over the top. Uh, and until then, these teams are just going to keep going back and forth. And let me just state about the Nationals. I always say every year that people are, are judging them way too highly, and it keeps coming to fruition, and I think even more so now that they don't have Bryce Harper. Here's a topic uh, I'll keep to us. There are obviously things that we want to cover with Tim, but let, let me throw this one out there, uh, and this one's going to be a surprise on you because I, I didn't email it to him. What do you think of Pete Alonso outplaying Michael Conforto? Sam? I, I think that, well, the real Michael Conforto, please stand up. You know, the book seems to be out on him occasionally. Uh, I think with... Pete Alonzo right now, you know, he's come back a little bit to the uh, to the medium, but at the same time, you know, he's started to adjust a little bit and has had some success over the last few days. I mean, you couldn't expect the league to not figure out the book on him, and now he's got to figure the book out on what the book is, basically. That's just that's just how it goes. And I love his energy. I think something we got to talk about with Pete Alonzo is the fact that he's taken a leadership role very quickly with this, this franchise. I mean, you see him pumping everybody up. I saw this, this clip of him pumping Familia up, which is a whole other topic that we'll get to in a second. And I, I think that he's been very, very impressive. And in terms of him outperforming Michael Conforto, uh, I, I, I just think that Michael Conforto hasn't been able to settle in and, you know, just in general over the last few years. And, and at some point uh, he'll, he'll probably be fine most likely, you know, and, and, and Pete Alonso will, will even out and we're not going to see this prolific April every single month. Like we just saw. Uh, I don't think he's going to have a, a regression of John Buck form um, because I, think very highly of him. He's impressed me with the way he adjusts to the pitch in the moment, the way he, he battles throughout the entire thing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just very impressed with him. And, and in terms of Michael Conforto, I think Michael Conforto will be fine. 
I just think that he hasn't been able to get his major league legs under him at, at all. You know, we're, we're seeing him finally come back from, you know, last year he was uh, trying to come back from an injury and then he settled in a little bit and got, got it moving at the end of the year. And I, I just think that at some point he's going to be the Michael Conforto we think he can be. Rich, the question is, Pete Alonso or the, the topic is Pete Alonso playing Michael Conforto. You got a quick take on that? Yeah, I'd say not sustainable. Uh, he is at the moment, but I, I think that he, I really, I really like Pete Alonso. It's not a, a dig on him, but I think as he goes through the middle of the season, you know, you see teams pitching him soft away, and he does he can chase out there. And Conforto is an established major league hitter, so I don't think you'll see this continue. Maybe Alonso hits for a little more power. But Conforto at this point in his career is better is a better hitter than Alonzo is at this point in his career. So I think what you're seeing now, Mike, has probably been anomalous. You're listening to a Metsian podcast with Sam, Rich, and Mike. At this time, allow me to introduce tonight's featured guest. He is in his second season covering the New York Mets for Newsday. And before that, he covered the Marlins for the South Florida Sun Sentinel, a Connecticut native and Boston U grad. Our guest is a proud New Englander and is taking a liking to living in New York City. On behalf of my partners, I welcome to the show Tim Keeley of Newsday. Hello, sir, and thank you very kindly for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, If you don't mind, I'll open up with questions because we're all kind of curious. If you don't mind, please expand upon your life experience. Tell us uh, your inspiration for becoming a writer slash sports writer. And if you have any advice for young upcoming, uh, you know, aspiring writers in life, and particularly in this new world of digital media. And lastly, I'd just like to attach to that. Uh, what do you make of, uh, as a journalist, what do you make of the slow death of print media? <laughs> that's, that's a lot of, lot of ground to cover there. I'll take them in the order you put them. As far as my background and inspiration as a writer and sports writer, uh, to be honest, I sort of just stumbled into it in high school. Growing up, I was never really liked writing. I hated English class, but uh, as a high school sophomore, I, on a whim, took the journalism class my high school offered and turned out to love it. They let me write about sports at our high school, and I went, then I became the sports editor and editor-in-chief and stuck through it all through high school and decided, well... Now I'm going to college. It would be pretty good if I could just keep doing this in college and maybe one day make a living doing it. You know, if somebody will pay you to watch and write about sports and, you know, hopefully baseball specifically, that seemed like a pretty good deal. So I pursued that at Boston University, you know, uh, interning all sorts of places, writing for the student paper there, um, and just kind of tried to tailor my experience to sports, yes, but also – Baseball specifically, since growing up, baseball was always my number one love, and all the other sports were just something to watch in the winter. Um, So, you know, I went to BU, started covering baseball, and a couple years after graduation got a a pretty significant break, you know, right place, right time sort of situation when the Sun Sentinel hired me to cover the Marlins. And that was a fun year and a half moving to <laughs> a state I had never been to before I went down there to interview in terms of 
Florida and South Florida and Miami specifically. Um, so that was an interesting little adventure for me. But then the Newsday job opened up when Mark Carrig, who I have great respect for, went to the athletic. And so I just threw my hat in the ring and, you know, those guys wanted to take a chance on me too. And I figured, you know, coming back to the Northeast was always the goal when I went to Florida. Um, fortunately that turned out to happen pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so now here I am with Newsday, covering the Mets, who always keep things interesting. Uh, and w- what were those couple of other questions about? Uh, what was it? Advice for any the, advice for young or? aspiring writers? My my go-to piece of advice for anybody who wants to get into sports journalism is whether you are majoring in journalism in college or majoring in something else, write for your college's student newspaper because there is no better way to learn journalism than by actually doing it um you know you can take classes and all that stuff and a lot some of some of that stuff is important but nothing can replace the actual practice you know practice makes perfect is a cliche in sports but it's true in journalism too um you know whether it's internships or part-time jobs at local newspapers or your student newspaper um, that experience is, is invaluable. Um, so that, that's always my go-to piece of, of advice for uh, people who want to pursue this. And, to, you know, a lot of people think they're interested in journalism or sports journalism, and they give it a shot, and they turn out to not like it very much. And the student newspaper is a great place to sort of go through that process and, uh, you know, dip your toes in the water, so to speak, and kind of figure that out. As far as uh, this brave new media world and the slow decline of print newspapers it's it's pretty stressful from an existential standpoint i try not to think about it too much on a day-to-day basis but um yeah it's it's the the reality is what it is that people don't read physical newspapers as much as they used to every newspaper company is trying to figure out a new business model most of that revolving around subscriptions online and really nobody's you know, found the uh, perfect the perfect way to do that yet. Um, I'm fortunate that Newsday still has a pretty strong print subscriber base. So, shout out to Long Island as a whole and all of the people there who like to read print newspapers still, including my grandparents who are longtime loyal Newsday subscribers. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have any answers there. I'm sort of just going with the flow, but um, I think in a lot of cases. Um, you know, whether it's it, it, media has always evolved and that's all we're seeing now is another piece or another step of the evolution um, and newspapers or journalism, local journalism will always have to exist. You know, whether it's pro sports, which is fun to read about, or more importantly, local government and national government. Um, you know, the, the, the <laughs> I, I like to call the sports department, the, the, to- the toy store, the, the toy section, uh, the stuff we cover often doesn't really matter on a grand scale. But, hey, if people want to read it, then all the better. I pass the baton to my partner, Sam. Tim, thank you so much for, for joining us. I, and I'd like to go back to what you said about uh, your your uh, baseball history, you, you know, it being your first love when it comes to sports. So, what particular team did you grow up uh, rooting for uh, growing up in Connecticut? 
So I, in Connecticut, I'm, so I'm from Danbury, which is right on the New York state line. Uh, mostly Yankees fans in that part of the state, but I actually grew up as a Red Sox fan. So I was definitely uh, uh, in the minority growing up and going to school. And uh, it was timed pretty well in terms of the 2004 and 2007 World Series. Definitely got to rub those in some uh, friends' faces, uh, you know, as, as they happened. Uh, but, yeah, I was, I was a Boston sports fan, was always a, a big fan of that city, which is why I wanted to go to college there. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's kind of – I don't have, a, 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 you know, a, one of those romantic baseball fan origin stories about, uh, you know, visiting the ballpark for a first time or, you know, watching it with my dad or anything along those lines. But somehow I just pretty randomly became obsessed with the Red Sox around middle school, and uh, it sort of just carried me here. <laughs> So before we move on to Rich, uh, I, I want to ask, and uh, as a follow-up to that, now that you cover other teams and now that you, you know, you, you uh, just cover baseball in general, uh, it, it seems like a lot of times uh, uh, you become pretty neutral as a sports writer. Does that seem to be happening, or do you still kind of have a place in your heart for the Red Sox? But it, well, once you get into the being a reporter, then you stop being a fan of a specific team. Um, I'm still a huge baseball fan, obviously, and I, I still follow the Red Sox to a pretty good de- degree just by virtue of, you know, talking about them with my with my parents or friends or whoever, you know, the other Red Sox fans in my life. But as far as the day-to-day emotional swings and living and dying with every game like I used to growing up, uh, that you know, doesn't happen anymore. Uh, and of course I obviously, you know, covering the day to day of the Mets am much more entrenched and uh, aware of what's going on in Mets world, obviously than I am with, you know, any other particular team or the, the sport as a whole, even while keeping an eye on, you know, a little bit of everything. Thank you. And Tim, now I introduce you to Rich. Hi, Tim, and like uh, Mike and Sam said, thank you for joining us this evening. I'm also a Connecticut guy. I live in Milford. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah, so and actually work in Danbury, so maybe someday we, we could talk about that. But uh, for, for purposes of the podcast, um, one thing I've wanted to ask a writer, a professional writer, is with regard to Twitter. I know you're quite active on Twitter. I, I follow you, and I actually, to be honest with you, I – I look for you when I log on to see what the lineup is and, and get my news, and I mean that in all candor. Um, I find hey, thank your, you. your Twitter presence is very professional. Um, it's spot on, so kudos to you. But my question is, how do you perceive that interaction? What are your thoughts on it? Because I know fans will fire back at you and vent their anger, not at, maybe not at you personally, but – they're anger about the Mets, and, and you're, they're coming back at you with, how can you say that, Bob? And, and what are you thinking this whole time? I mean, are you restraining yourself from coming back at them? Do you see it as, hey, this is part of my job? Or how do you think about, and what's your perception of your interaction with the fans on Twitter? It's a little bit of all of those things. So I, th- I think Twitter overall and it, a sports writer's use of it is definitely a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, it, it's basically mandatory these days as far as promoting yourself and your stories and your outlets, your news outlets. Um, it's just a standard part of the job. Um, but at the same time, it is a time suck. I spend way too much time just scrolling endlessly, um, looking at, you know, most of the time useless information from all sorts of people. 
um, just as a way to kill time. It's, uh, it's a bad habit I think a lot of people have these days. As far, and as far as the fan interactions, uh, I think spending too much time on Twitter can warp my, my sense and other people's sense of what the fan base is thinking. So I, I think it's important. I try to remind myself of this all the time that Twitter is not real life. The opinions expressed vehemently oftentimes by the masses on Twitter don't necessarily represent what the larger world is thinking. That's true in politics. It's true in sports. It's true with a given fan base. So if Mickey Calloway makes whatever bullpen decision and it doesn't go well and Mets Twitter is super angry about it, Sure, I, I know these Mets fans are unhappy about it, but you know I, I don't claim to know how the fan base as a whole is feeling because Twitter is such a small segment of that. And if and chances are, if you're speaking out on Twitter about a given topic, then you absolutely feel you know you feel strongly enough about it to put your opinion out there. As far as fan interaction goes, it's kind of a case by case basis. I like to be interactive. I like to be informative. Uh, I like to be playful and, you know, banter with people. Um, if, if I get a question on Twitter and it seems like a genuine question, then I'm happy to clarify or elaborate or answer that question. But then, of course, there are your trolls who just, you know, want to be angry. And, you know, I, most of the times I, I, don't, I don't respond to them because, um, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to – all they're looking for is to get a rise out of somebody um, and – most of the time, if you ignore them, then they just go away. Uh, but I, I do like that part of the job, even if it can be kind of a time suck in terms of establishing that connection with readers and fans. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, again, I'll, I'll just say this in, in closing on that point. I really appreciate what you do because, you know, some some folks try to be amateur comedians, and it's like, you know what, there's enough of that out there. But your yeah. stuff is always so informative and straightforward, and and done with such a good tone. So thank you for what you do, what you do, and please keep doing it. That that's my final comment on that. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate I'll that. Just, I'll just add this, uh, Tim. Really, in all sincerity, uh, John Lennon was on a friend of mine's podcast, the Fast Ball Show, perhaps about two years ago, and here you are on our podcast. I, I just want to thank you and and Newsday. Uh, for acknowledging fans and participating in, in, you know, fan programs such as this. Uh, Thank you, again, from the bottom of my heart. And and please extend that to John as well, because like I said, I think it's a lot. You guys put yourselves at risk because you never know what to expect from things of of this nature. So uh, thank you and thank him and thank Newsday. Will do, will do. I I always think that, you know, you have to treat the readers and fans nicely because, we're only here, much like the players. We're only here doing our jobs because there's an appetite for it. So, uh, as long as there's an ap- appetite, I'm I'm happy to do it. Well, we got an appetite for Mets baseball. Uh, we opened the show with uh, <laughs> general general excuse me generalities uh, uh, about the first month that was and the series that was. The Mets are 16 and 15. Uh, I threw out a couple of figures. They have a minus 19 run differential. Uh, yet the offense is what's keeping them afloat. The bullpen has issues. Starting rotation has issues, although this last go-round, you know, there's been a, a stark improvement. So before we get into those specifics, uh, anything to say about the first 
month of the season. I'll also throw out there that the uh, the Mets are eight and eight against their division rivals, excluding the Miami Marlins. And uh, take it from there, Tim. Oh, I also sure, threw out well, the question of. I also, I'm sorry. I also threw out the question of uh, are the Mets uh, the beneficiaries of parity at the moment? Uh. You know, I think if you put that question to Mickey Calloway, he would say yes, because the Mets, at least publicly, say that they like the idea of playing in a tough division because it'll, you know, make them better in the long run. But you mentioned the 8-8 eight and eight record against the Braves, Phillies, and Nationals, and I think that's about what anybody could have reasonably expected coming into the season, because those four teams are so good on paper and so evenly matched on paper. Uh, my, my take coming into the season was the Mets are probably – the third most talented team in theory uh, in the division behind the Phillies and Nationals, but ahead of the Braves. But realistically, once you get to playing the games, those four teams can finish in any order when it's all said and done. So I ha- in terms of the Mets and what they've done so far, you know, the rotation coming around, the offense being overall pretty good, but less so this, the past couple of days, I haven't seen enough to sway me from my season opening prediction, I'd say. I'm not convinced that the Mets can be a, a 90 win, 90 plus win division champion team yet. Um, well, actually, let me rephrase that. They absolutely can be that, but I, I'm not convinced that they will be that. I think they still have a lot, a lot of work cut out for them. Um, but as we've seen the last couple of days, and as you alluded to, you know, when, when, De, when DeGrom and Syndergaard are pitching like they should, and when Wheeler and then Mats are really good three and four starters behind them, then that makes a lot of things possible for this team. There you go. And, Rich, I'm going to segue to you. We're going to stay on pitching. We're going to talk about the starters. And we're obviously going to start with Noah Syndergaard's uh, outing today, a stellar start. Nine innings, four hits, no runs, one walk, ten strikeouts, 104 pitches, uh, economic success. He only faced 31 batters. Now, that said, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to go back in time, and I'm going to start with Zach Wheeler's start on April 23rd against Philly. He pitched seven innings, gave up five hits, no runs, no walks, struck out 11. Now, let's get back to DeGrom. Wednesday against Cincinnati, seven innings, three hits, no runs, two walks, six strikeouts. Vargas, Tuesday against Cincinnati, 5.1 innings. Three hits allowed, one earned run, three walks, five strikeouts. Steven Max against Milwaukee, I believe that was Sunday. Seven innings, five hits, two earned runs, no walks, four strikeouts. That's the rotation. They started out inconsistently, but this last run through the rotation has been stellar. And like I said, I cheated. I didn't take Wheeler's last start. I took his second to last start. So that said, Take this anywhere you were, anywhere you want. Starting pitchers, no Syndergaard, uh, wherever you want to go, my friend. Well, you know, Mike. In my opinion, it's the back of the baseball card theory, right? Th- these guys were not going to pitch to a six-plus ERA all year. It just was not possible based on who they are. So you're seeing them start to come to the mean, right? And in this case, progress to the mean that we have set for them in our minds. And it's not at all unexpected. It's really what, to use the term, should be happening. Um, Now, on the other side of that, 
And we have every reason to believe that they could sustain this. I mean, that they could sustain consistent, like use the Wheeler example. He had one, you know, hiccup in there, but generally speaking, these guys will go out there and they'll give you six quality innings of, you know what, three-run ball, keep you in the game. That's what they should be doing. And like I said before, I didn't ask about hitting, but on the other side of the coin, they're not going to average six runs a game over a full season. The back of the baseball card just does not support that. So I think what we're seeing is, is things are starting to settle in. You know, maybe guys weren't comfortable. You know, you had DeGrom ill. You had Syndergaard talking mechanics. You know, Vargas um, seems to have found what he had in early spring training and also the second half of last year. So I'm not at all surprised that that's where they are. Um, what what concerns me is, you know, the sustainability of the offense and then somehow hitting a middle ground here where the pitchers are doing what we want them to do and what we expect them to do, and the offense is giving them a reasonable chance to win. I think that's the bigger issue than the pitching somehow staying at this ridiculously anomalous, you know, six-plus ERA over a long period. Sam, you think they're straightening out, or is this, you know, just one of those transient upticks? I'll lather up what I put out before about those individual starts. Uh, those five starts equated to 35.1 innings pitched. That comes out to a 0.77 ERA and a 0.74 WHIP. What say you, Sam? I think, I mean, if you look around the league with aces, uh, there there was this consistency of inconsistency. Everybody had an ERA over 450, something crazy like that. Uh, whether it's DeGrom, Nola, Chris Sale, you know. Um, and I know that some people, and this is also coinciding with uh, the most prolific month of home runs, which seems we keep seem, seeming to say every April. Uh, it just gets worse and worse or better and better, however you want to look at it. And, you know, some people think the ball is juiced, it's wound too tight or, or whatever you, however you want to phrase it. Um, and, you know what? What was it that Noah Syndergaard said the other day that it felt like like a like a uh, an ice cube? Yeah, exactly. And so you you have to wonder whether they're right, and 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 it might just be them getting used to the feel of the ball again. Um, I haven't looked around the league as to whether the same thing is happening to other people's aces as what we have seen over the last week, uh, but. Uh, you know what? What Rich said. Everybody's going to play to their their baseball cards, um, uh, hopefully. And, and I, you know, what, what, let, let's go to today's game specifically. I think it was something crazy, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, unfortunately. But Noah Syndergaard had been using like 12% of his curveball uh, the last time, and this time he had something like like. 30 to 40% he was finally using his breaking pitch. And it was really sharp today. And, and, and you saw him, whether, whether it was the beard or not, you saw him finally, you know, in the zone. He had this look just like Jacob deGrom had the other day of enough is enough. I have to focus. I have to uh, uh, just be in the zone finally. And, it was very impressive to watch, and I'm happy that I, I got a chance to, to watch it on television today. So, I, you know, whether it's the hair down, whether it's the beard, or whether it's the actual baseball approach, I think that it, it's just it's really exciting when all four of these pitchers, all five of these pitchers, uh, pitch as well as they have the last week. 
well, Tim, you called me with Vargas and, and Matson when the five of them were performing well. Uh, the last week demonstrates what these guys can accomplish. With Syndergaard specifically, uh, I believe he's always had the repertoire. It's just uh, he lacks craftsmanship. Uh, and your overall observations of the pitching staff, Tim. Yeah, if you, you, that's a good point by you about the craftsmanship with Syndergaard. Today obviously was a gem, and that's kind of the Syndergaard people have been waiting to see regularly for, you know, this is what, season number five for him in the majors now? It feels like each of the past three or four years he's been one of those sexy preseason Cy Young picks, um, you know, and then Jacob DeGrom goes and blows past him last year and actually went the the Cy Young. But it, it gets to a point, and, you know, no Syndergaard's 26 now, it gets to a point where it, it's time for him to just be the pitcher that everybody has expected him to be for so long, and that's an actual ace. I know a lot of people tend to, you know, group Degrom and Matt uh, Degrom and Syndergaard, excuse me, together. Um, but as far as what they've actually done in the majors, um, even before Degrom's huge 2018, Degrom was steps ahead of Syndergaard and Syndergaard for so long has only been the potential and glimpses of it. And then an injury and then another extended stretch of it and then another injury. Um, but so if he can actually stay healthy and not throw nine shutout innings every five days, but uh, pitch to that sub three ERA, like he's done in his career while actually taking the ball for 30 to 32 starts in a season, uh, then that's, that's huge. That's huge. Um, as far as the rotation overall, I think you guys said it. Um, they were never going to be a six ERA as a group. Um, they're not going to be a one ERA as they've been this past time through or so. Uh, but, you know, when it comes down to it, those four guys, and if you can get by with Jason Vargas, great. But really it's up to those four guys at the top. Um, them pitching up to their abilities is what can make or break this season Again, and it's the same thing uh, everybody said since 2015 or 16 about the Mets, um, but it's it's still true because that's the sort of talent they have there. Let's shift to the bullpen then. Gentlemen, the Mets have implemented 13 pitchers thus far. Uh, some of these numbers are outright scary. Let me frame it for you this way. Let me group five pitchers as our core bullpen. Edwin Diaz, Familia, Kisselman, Seth Lugo, and let's just say Luis Avila. The five of them have combined on a 4.86 ERA and a whip of 1.473. That's just those five guys. Then there's this other group of eight, Gagnon, O'Rourke, Zamora, Oswald, Peterson, uh, Jacob Rahm, Seawald, and Wilson. Those eight gentlemen have combined on an ERA of 5.98 and a whip of 1.63. The bullpen as a whole presently owns an ERA of 5.23 and a whip of 1.526. That was my show prep. Rich, the bullpen. What say you? Again, I, I don't think it's sustainable. 
at a at a nearly a six ERA. There there are some talented people in that bullpen. Edwin Diaz, you know, this week aside, um, the guy doesn't save fifty seven games and and be the best closer in baseball for for no reason. The guy is is good, and so even though his ERA is not one of the more offensive ones at two point one three, you, you have him, you have Gesellman, you have Lugo. Familia has obviously contributed to some of the uh, some of the unsightly numbers, but I see the bullpen progressing to its mean as well. It's never going to be a great bullpen; it just isn't. The arms aren't there, but it's also not a six ERA bullpen. So I do think you will see them pitch to what they're capable of. You know, maybe more like a four ERA kind of a bullpen. And you know, you have to remember with bullpens too; these are small sample sizes for these guys. If Gaselman goes out there and has a bad third of an inning, his numbers are skewed for three weeks because you know he, it takes a long time. That denominator is just not big. It takes a long time to get that denominator up so you can normalize that bad outing. So it'll take some time, but I do think they'll settle in and pitch well. They're very thin. Um, let he who did not think the game was over in a negative way when Gagno came in the other night raise his hand because I don't think there's anybody out there. Hmm. When he came in, I was like, oh, my God, this is over. And it turned out he got the strikeout, pitched a clean tenth, you know, so very pleasant surprise. But but they're thin. But the guys that they have in there, they're not they're not six ERA guys. They'll they'll get to a four ERA and and we'll see we'll see an uptick in the bullpen. Uh Tim, I forward everything your way. I'll only add on top of this, uh your impressions of Mickey Calloway's operation. And as an aside, you know, the Mets are making very good usage of, of having Syracuse in their backyard. They are. Yeah. The, uh, you know, to tackle it. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Sir. Okay. Uh, I, as far as the Syracuse thing, uh, absolutely. It's been, uh, you know, my, just in talking to a couple of the players who have come done that Syracuse to New York trip at least once already, um, it's not exactly easy in terms of direct flights from Syracuse or wherever the Syracuse Mets are in the International League to New York or wherever the Mets are. But whatever the logistics, it's a lot easier than Las Vegas to New York, which a lot of times meant a red-eye flight. Um, with the International League being, you know, based on the eastern side of the United States, it's a lot of early morning flights, sure, but that's a lot easier than the alternative. Um, and as far as far as Mickey Calloway, you mentioned the, the, the button pushing with the bullpen? Yes, sir. Uh, to me, I, so, so I know this is a, a hot button thing on with Mets fans on Twitter. I don't have – as much of an issue with it, except for the strict usage of Edwin Diaz. Um, I think to not use him in a tie game on the road is a mistake. I think the decision to not use him in that tie game in Philly a couple of weeks ago was a mistake. Uh, because if you're not using your best reliever in that spot, then what are you doing? Um, but as far as things like <clears throat> Edwin Diaz, a couple of days ago, a couple of times this week, in terms of him giving up the go-ahead home run and the tie game at home, uh, to me that's not on Mickey Callaway. You put your best reliever in the game 
in that important moment, it's up to the player to do well. And if you give up a home run to Jose Iglesias, of all people, then that's on you. That can't possibly be on the manager. Um, but to get to a point uh, you guys were making, the bullpen, for all the hype, I think, in spring training, I, I was skeptical of this uh, as, as a definite strength. I think Edwin Diaz should be good, and, and he has been good, even if people remember the homers uh, most easily. I, I'm willing to chalk up Familia's bad start to uh, what I suspect was a longer-term shoulder issue than it popping up the other morning. Um, Seth Lugo, we saw him for one year of relief, and he was excellent, and he has been very good now, sub-2 ERA since April 7th, which is going on a full month. But then you get to Robert Gazelman, who, frankly, wasn't that good last year. He had a you know, mid-fours ERA, and so it's kind of hard to bank on him being uh, in a group of theoretically locked-down late-inning setup men. Justin Wilson is, is fine. Um, <laughs> I have no Justin Wilson take except that he should be perfectly acceptable. Um, and then after that, who is it? You know, Luis Avalon, who's been bad after making the team with the great spring, or, you know, any number of, you know, Syracuse Mets arms. We haven't seen Tyler Bachelor yet. He's kind of the guy that I think can have a breakout year if he gets a chance, even though he had a bad spring. Daniel Zamora, Jacob Rame, like all these other guys. You need Drew Smith. I think that's a sneaky big loss for the Mets this year, him having Tommy John surgery in spring training. For the Mets' bullpen to actually be a big-time strength, you need one or two of those guys to establish themselves as legitimate major league options, and nobody has, which just – and then that problem is compounded when their quote-unquote established arms are um, not acting like it the last couple of days. <laughs> so, so I guess to get back to the original point, I don't blame Mickey Calloway as much as I do uh, – the players when you're you know it's it, at a certain point it's up to the players and the players have to perform agreed uh sam i i, I kind of feel bad for jerry's familiar the other night but uh sam your bullpen observations yeah you know with familia i i think it's been more mental uh, well you know now we know about the shoulder injury uh but you, you never know exactly what's what's going on there because something seemed off from a mental perspective, and, and it was just body language as well, you know. Whether it's the the uh, uh, transition to being the eighth inning guy again, which he started his career out as, uh, or whether it was just the shoulder injury, something wasn't right. His mechanics were off, and uh, he almost got it together the other night, but it just wasn't meant to be. And, you know, you, you um, in terms of the overall – bullpen usage of Mickey Calloway, you know, I, I think that everybody's going to point at this thing or that thing. I've never met a manager or seen a manager who hasn't been given grief throughout the entire major leagues for the way they use the bullpen, even in a uh, World Series winning year, such as Game 7 uh, for the Cubs uh, with some um, how is his name escaping me right now? What's the manager's name of the Cubs, guys? Joe Madden. <laughs> Joe Madden. Thank you. Jesus. Uh, but, you know, the one thing I will say, and, and you know, Tim, Tim mentioned how you need your best pitcher there 
in certain situations. And it does dictate that, you know, your best pitcher should be there when you're trying to keep the game as such tied in the ninth inning. Uh, But I think people did have a point about the fact that Seth Lugo didn't get a chance to to go more than one batter after uh, pitching in the eighth the other night. Um, That's just my personal opinion about it, that, you have this, these examples, especially with Edwin Diaz, even though it's small sample size, where he, his batting average against goes up to into the threes when he's entering in a tie game. Uh, and he hasn't done so all that often, but it's still there. I always think of Familia against the Giants in the wild card game. Um, and Mariano Rivera, who is one of the greatest closers of all time, and some would say the greatest closer of all time, constantly faltered when he was brought into a tie game. So I I, I just think there's a tra- – I'd love to take a look at the numbers uh, of, of general major league closers over the last 20 years and what their record is being brought into a tie game. Now, on the road, like Tim says, that's a different story in many ways because you can't necessarily be saving him for that stack that might come in the bottom of, of an inning. You know, like going going back to what you said, Rich. Uh, uh, sometimes some of these relievers, when they get a chance, they surprise you. And Dan Gagnon, or or however you pronounce it, uh, uh, impressed me immensely the other day. When other people falter, uh, some people are able to take the the bull by the horns and shine. And uh, transitioning that into the whole Syracuse thing. What I have really loved about it is that when a pitcher is summoned, he's in there that night. You hear about it at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he gets a chance to be in the game. You're not one player down like you were with Vegas. So, you know, I I don't think they're going to have a 6 ERA all all year, but I'll take what Tim said again. It's not an obvious strength, and they're going to have to keep mixing and matching for it to work. That said, let's transition to the other side of the battery, catcher. Uh, Tim, I'm going to throw the whole shebang at you again. Travis Darno, DFA, uh, was that money up in smoke? Bad business? With a question mark. Uh, Devin Mezzarocco still on the restricted list. And Thomas Nito, uh, his merits. Sure, yeah. I think the uh, the Travis Darno episode uh, over the weekend was really, really interesting because he very quickly went from having a bad couple of games fresh off the DL for uh, fresh off the injured list for a year um, to all of a sudden, Oh, he still only has one hit at the end of April. And now he's getting food at home. And then Sunday morning, he gets DFA'd. It seemed to escalate very quickly. And I'm surprised at how quickly the Mets moved on from him, given that they had, you know, that three and a half million dollars, you know, they thought highly enough of Travis Darnot as a hitter and as a catcher to tender him a contract and then agree to three and a half million dollar contract. And then throughout a spring training in which he didn't look very good, granted he was still rehabbing, but uh, his throws were bad. He couldn't hit minor leaguers on the backfield. Um, Instead of cutting him for one month of pay, they kept him and then they kept him into the season, which, turned his $3.5 million contract into a fully guaranteed deal. Uh, but it was very strangely handled from the beginning. 
and I think the Mets moving on after just a month, oh, just a month into the season, is them admitting that they they messed that one up. Um, as far as Devin Mezzarocco goes, he's still on the restricted list, still has no plans, as far as I've heard, to deviate from that. That kind of surprises me. I think if Devin Mezzarocco came back now and, well, frankly, you know, I'll never knock a guy for looking out for himself and doing right by him and his family. Um, I can't blame him for not wanting to go to the minors um, to begin with. But if he did, then he'd probably be in the majors right now. Instead, it's Tomas Nito with Devin Mezzarocco having no plans to come back. And Tomas Nito doesn't offer really anything with the bat, but uh, the Mets have long regarded him pretty highly as a defensive as a defensive catcher, you know, pitch framing, game calling, all of those things. So as far as the Mets valuing catcher defense at a time when Wilson Ramos hasn't been particularly good defensively, um, Tomas Nito is an upgrade over Travis Darnot. That said, it's a lot of conversation about the backup catcher spot who plays you know, once or twice a week, I think uh, the Mets would be much better served or rather it would make a bigger difference for the Mets if Wilson Ramos started to hit and defend like the catcher that the Mets thought they were signing. It's coming up on 10 p.m. Uh, we're with Tim Keeley from Newsday. Uh, Tim, um, before I give this uh, subject matter over to uh, my partner's we have maybe two more subjects to play with. Would you be willing to stick around for those? Sure. All right. Uh, so, gentlemen, Rich, uh, I'll go to you with the catching situation. And uh, do we have resolution? No. Uh, I agree with what Tim said, uh, everything he said, but I'll uh, particularly latch on to the last thing he said, which is you know, we can sit here and talk about backup catcher all we want. You know, We could talk about the benefits or lack thereof of Nito and, and Darno, but – the thing is, Wilson Ramos is your number one catcher, and folks, he's not getting it done. I mean, well, let's not lose sight of that. You know, Ramos is now hitting 244 with one home run. So here was a guy that we thought, or what was put out there was, Ramos is a good offensive catcher. He handles the pitching staff well. Uh, may not be the greatest on throwing runners out and you know and balls in the dirt because of his size and mobility issues, but okay. But we were we were led to believe, by, and not in a nefarious way, we were led to believe by his past that this guy would hit. He would use his veteran presence to call a good game. And, and I don't think we're seeing any of that. We're certainly not seeing the hitting. And and I'm not blaming Ramos for the six ERA, the pitchers. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what I haven't seen is this amazing, you know, game calling and pitch framing and all those other things, those subtle things the catcher could do. So the catching spot is a big issue. And sure, we could talk about the DFA of Travis, Travis Darno and Nito, but let's look at the number one guy and how he's not getting it done. We wanted, we expected him to be a middle of the order hitter. Well, nobody's going to be a middle of the order hitter when you have one home run and, and batting 244. So we we have to stay conscious of that. That right now, the Mets are getting very little from the catching spot, defensively, offensively, first string, second string. They're getting very little. It's kind of a black hole. And I think it's one of the bigger problem areas on the team. Well said, Sam. Take it away. Yeah, you know, he got a double today. Obviously, he didn't come. He made it as far as third, so he didn't come in, into home. 
Um, but I, I think, you know, what everybody is saying is correct. You know, we need more out of, of Wilson Ramos, and he was at least, a, you know, getting the singles in, but everybody kind of expected it to regress because he was hitting a lot of balls on the ground, and now they're getting caught. Um, I, I guess the way I want to wrap it up, well, first of all, with Travis Darno, we've always, we kept saying that we were done with uh, basically across the board, all three of us were ready to move on from the Travis Darno experiment. And it, it's interesting, Tim uh, explaining, you know, his take was, was that the Mets admitted that they made a mistake with that. So I'd like to loop it back around to Tim and, and ask exactly how the restricted list works. Is it basically Devin Mesoraco can't do anything unless he accepts a minor league assignment? Yeah, it's basically like a, almost like a team-imposed suspension. Uh, he is under contract with the Mets still. He signed that minor league deal in February, uh, the same day the Phillies traded for JT Real Muto, actually, if you remember. Um, so he is under minor league contract with the Mets, but – refuses to go to a minor league team. So, um, you know, the Mets, if they wanted to, could just set him, you know, cut him loose and he could go sign with somebody else or try to sign with somebody else. Um, but they own his rights and it's their prerogative to say, you know, you can still come to one of our minor league affiliates. Uh, Syracuse could really use another catcher with Rene Rivera right now. Um, but the Mets are under no obligation to, let him be a free agent. You know, he's, he's their player. They, the player and the team agreed to terms. Um, and with the player just, you know, going AWOL essentially, um, you know, the, the team puts them on the restricted list. Yeah. You know, cause it, whoever handled this incorrectly, it, it's just, it's a very strange circumstance right now. And it sounds like overall, there there must have been some miscommunication between everybody involved. Uh, so he's still getting paid. Is that correct? Uh, no, he, he doesn't get paid. Well, it, it was a the minor league deal is very minor amount of money to begin with. He did receive his retention bonus when the date passed. It's like a hundred thousand dollars or something like that okay. at some point in in late March. Um, but as far as the miscommunication, it, it sounds like there was a little bit of that. Yeah, Devin Mizrocco believed at the time, you know, during his pre-contract talks with the Mets that um, he had a couple of viable paths to making the major league team out of spring training, whether it was the Mets going with three catchers or if Darno was to open the season on the injured list, um, then, you know, Mizrocco could win the backup job that way. And then when it came down to it, the Mets saw their options in front of them for six or seven weeks of spring training and decided, even with Darno out, and they didn't want three catchers on the active roster, which makes sense because three catchers is a lot. Um, but all, more significantly, they like Tomas Nito more than Devin Mezzarocco. Um, so, you know, he, he was really just the, the odd man out, got some tough luck there. Um, teams don't really make outright promises to guys um, in terms of you know you'll be on the you'll be on the team definitely if Starno is on the injured list. Uh, so I, I, I have trouble believing that that would be the case in concrete terms. Um, but I can understand the guy's disappointment. You know he's been in the major league since 
what was it, 2011 or 12, I think? No, not that long. Maybe 13, but, you know, six, five, six, seven years. Um, you know, it's a tough game, you know? <laughs> Sometimes it's done with you before you're done with the game. Right, uh, but meanwhile, Carlos Gomez is in Syracuse. Uh, um, Chris Davis is in Syracuse. Or not Chris Davis, excuse me. Uh, Roger Davis. Davis, yeah. Yeah. And Greg so, Blanco with Danny Echevarria. Greg yeah, Blanco. Mm-hmm. time down there. Exactly. So, you know, what's to say? I, I, I Obviously, uh, there, there's a gray area, and it's not black and white as much as us fans, and like you were talking about on Twitter, like to say it is. You know, it's hard for me to judge exactly what, uh, you know, Gavin Mezzarocco is going through, but you got to think, like, like uh, some, you know, one of us said, it, it, he'd be in the matrix right now. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. You know what? Let's get yeah. Syracuse topical. We'll transition over to the hitting, which we've been avoiding thus far. Uh, a competitive offense, even though the numbers are a little bit, you know, maybe misleading, timely hitting, the Mets wouldn't be in this position where not for timely hitting. Uh, but back to Syracuse, let's talk crowd control because if and when Larry returns, we already experienced the return of Todd Frazier, crowd control, J.D. Davis, Keon Broxton, even Dom Smith. Uh, and I would make it a point you know, the Mets need to do everything in their in their power to keep Jeff McKnight on the 25-man roster. So anywhere you want to go with the offense, anybody in particular, Rich, I'll, I'll go to you because you brought up uh, our, our catcher and his offense production. So uh, crowd control and anybody in particular on offense you want to highlight? Well, when it comes to crowd control, you know, obviously Lowry's going to be added as soon as he's physically able. And so they do have – they do definitely do have a very tough roster decision to make. You can go a lot of ways with it, and I'm, I'm fascinated to hear Tim's take on this. One thing you could say is Dom Smith, right, because Dom Smith doesn't really play very much. Uh, he's certainly done a great job. I don't have his stats in front of me. I can pull them up in a moment. But I believe in a very small sample size he was hitting about 400. You know, can't ask the guy to do more than that. But the fact is he can only play one position well. And he doesn't really play. So is he the guy that gets sacrificed when, when Lowry's ready? Because Lowry can play first in a bench? Maybe. Um, Keon Broxton is out of options. So the Mets would basically be saying, okay, we traded somebody to, or traded some prospects to get Keon Broxton, although one of them is hurt now, right? Um, but, um, and, but we're just going to you know, let him walk away. Can't really do that. So Keon, is Keon Broxton the guy to go? Don't really know. Um, so they do have a tough, tough choice to make when Lowry is ready. And, again, when we get around to Tim, I want to hear his, his take on, on who that might be. I think Hetcheveria should be on this team. I, I think they need an established backup middle infielder. It's kind of puzzling to me that they went and signed this guy who fits that role perfectly to give Rosario a spell when Rosario needs it. And sometimes I think with Rosario, he needs it mentally as much as physically. Um, so... I don't know why Hetcheveria is not on this team. I, I would make room for him myself. And to answer your, your last question, Mike, to highlight anyone, I'm going to highlight two people real quickly. On the negative side of things, you have to talk about Brandon Nimmo. Um, his OBP of 352 is certainly acceptable, but his 222 batting average and his insane amount of strikeouts, that is not acceptable. 
And I don't know if they're entertaining the idea of maybe sending him down, but um, the 352 on base percentage just isn't enough for me. He um, he hasn't shown enough that he's making a worthwhile contribution to the team. He'll have some good games, have a couple three hit games, but the strikeouts are just ridiculous. And, and you know, and getting back to Jeff McNeil, I'll highlight him on the positive side. It's not just the 365 average going into today. It's not just the 450 OBP. It's the way the guy plays the game. It's the, it's the drag bunt to get a run in the other night. It's the dirty uniform. It's the I'll play any position thing. Um, how can the fan base not love this guy? You know, he, he does. He's a, he's the um, the average Joe, so to speak, who's out there busting his behind and getting great results. What's not the love there? So I'll, I'll highlight Jeff McNeil on the positive side, and I'll question if Brandon Nimmo doesn't need a trip to Syracuse. I'm with you with I'm with you on Brandon Nemo. Uh, so the question is: Is he is he enduring any kind of nagging injuries? Uh, that question being asked, uh, Mr. Tim Healy of Newsday, the floor is yours. As far as Nemo and the injuries, that question isn't asked not you know with any regularity with Nemo though, and the kind of the way he plays, uh, how frequently he gets hit by pitches, especially on the hand again early this year. You always wonder. Uh, but to me, it, it, it might be a bigger question of, okay, here's a player who had an awesome breakout season in 2018. Before that, hadn't, endure, hadn't had a ton of major league success and really had never had a, 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 you know, a long shot at playing in the majors. Maybe he's, we're still figuring out what kind of major leaguer Brandon Nimmo is going to be. Last year, he had a 400 OBP. This year, he's down around 350, which is a, a pretty steep drop. But was he ever going to replicate that 400 OBP? I, I would bet not, you know. Um, you know, you expect a little bit more power from him. His slugging percentage is down more than 100 points. But, um, you know, as far as Brandon Nimmo and how how much of a known quantity he is, I'm not as confident in predicting – the rest of his career as I am in predicting, say, Michael Conforto's. You know, he hasn't gotten a lot of um, attention this year because of the Alonzos and the McNeils, but, you know, Michael Conforto pretty quietly has a 900 OPS, and if it weren't for Pete Alonzo adjusting to the major leagues about as quickly and about as well as anybody could have guessed, then Michael Conforto would be leading the Mets in home runs. You know, he's got a half dozen of them as, you know, we sit here on May 2nd. Um, so I got it, kind of got off topic there from the Brandon Nimmo question. Oh, but I, I wanted to get to the, uh, the Jed Lowry, the Jed Lowry thing, if that's all right. Please. Uh, so I'm, you mentioned that you're fascinated to hear my take, but frankly, I'm fascinated to see how the Mets handle this because there are no obvious answers. I've seen Keon Broxton's name getting floated out there on Twitter and, you know, how not good, how bad he's been this year, but the Mets just traded three minor leaguers for him. None of them were big-time prospects, but the Mets clearly saw something in this guy and were willing to give up some of their prospect inventory for him. I would be shocked if they designated him for assignment right after they did that to Darno a month into the season and lost that $3.5 million. Um, J.D. Davis is another one of those possibilities. Uh, 
But again, he's he's played pretty well. They really really like him against left-handers, and the numbers merit that. And then Dom Smith, sure, you could send him down because he is defensively limited. But the poor guy is hitting 400, like you said. Had an awesome spring training. Has done has been a, a you know said all the right things. Been a great teammate. As his first base playing time has been sapped by Pete Alonso. Uh, uh, you know Alonso obviously deservingly getting all that playing time. Um, so th- there are no easy answers there. I'm fascinated to see how it goes. But that said, Jed Lowry, I have to believe, is still a couple weeks away uh, from returning. He missed all of spring training. This knee injury has really, really dragged on. Um, you know, it's almost cliche to say it, but these sorts of things tend to work themselves out. There was a point last May or June when Frazier was coming back and Wilmer Flores was coming back from his back injury or whatever he had. And I thought, okay, soon there's going to be a roster crunch and there's no way the Mets keep Jose Reyes around because Jose Reyes is, has been terrible. And then next thing you know, it's the end of August and Jose Reyes has survived on the roster the entire season. Um, just because other holes on the roster popped up. So it ended up working out for them roster management wise, or at least ended up working out for Jose Reyes, um, which is all to say the Jad Lowry decision will be an interesting one, but the Mets might get an answer from whatever their personnel looks like, you know, week and a half, two weeks down the line. Tim, I'm going to go right back to you. This is going to be a loaded question. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> skewed as a fan. Skewed as a fan. Uh, I'll say that uh, right right, right away. Is Bertie Van Wagenen right to stick with Vargas over Keuchel? Part B of that, and this is the skewed version, when does BBW's bold narrative crash head-on with ownership's impaired financial operation. Well, I think that's already happened. In terms of Vargas versus Keiko, obviously Dallas Keiko would be a better option than Jason Vargas. And I promise Brody Van Wagenen or any executive, any GM, would rather have Keiko over Vargas. But they don't make their own budget. It's ownership who makes the budget. It's Jeff and Fred Wilpon who make the Mets budget. And Mets ownership right now doesn't want Dallas Keuchel, and Mets ownership doesn't want Jason, or, uh, Craig Kimball, who would also be a great addition and is still available for only money. Uh, so as far as uh, Brody's narrative about being bold and all that, I mean, I, I give him credit for a decent offseason. I don't think it was great, but I think it was it was fine. He plugged a couple holes with trades. He kept this spending to a minimum, but still made uh, quite a few improvements. So the Mets right now are a lot better than they were at the end of 2018. Um, but it was obvious in years past, and it's been obvious in the first six or seven months of Brody Van Wagen in tenure with the Mets, that the Mets aren't players at the highest level financially. And that will always hamstring them. And it'll always hamstring the front office's ability to get the best players. That's uh I mean, I know it, it's frustrating for fans. It's extremely frustrating for fans. It's um, kind of mind-numbing sometimes to watch day in and day out, but that's the reality they're working with. Um, I don't think Brody's kidding himself. He knows Dallas Keuchel is, is much better than 
Jason Vargas, but what's he going to do? You can only, you can only do what your boss tells you, you know? We've all debated that in previous podcasts, so I'm not going to turn that one over to my partners. Instead, I'm just going to drag you into our clothes. You're here, so you're stuck. <laughs> what we do is coincide the number of our episodes uh, with Mets players who have worn that particular number. This hey, hey, episode Mike, number can I, 24. Mike, yeah, absolutely, Mike, Sam. Go we, ahead. Yeah, before we do this, I, I just wanted to, to close out uh, the 2019 portion for Tim with this question. Why do you think the Mets, and I'm not sure if they currently still lead the league in hit taxmen, but what do you think it is about the Mets this year where the, the scouting report, it seems, across the board with all the teams that are facing them, is to pitch inside? Why do you think they're leading the major leagues or, or at least close to it? You know, that's a I, – I don't, I don't know. My theory is – is that it's a fluke thing to begin the year. I don't know that it's going to stand up over the course of the year. But, yeah, if you think about not only the number of times they've gotten hit, but the number of times prominent players have had to leave games after getting hit on the hand specifically, you know, Cano, Alonzo, McNeil, Nimmo, Cano again. Like, it's just it's every other day the lead of my daily Mets notebook is so-and-so leaves game after getting hit on hand, you know. X-ray is negative every time somehow uh they really dodged a lot of bullets there um but as far as uh you know why they get hit so much you know like you know the, the fluke thing is definitely a possibility but there's also a new heading coach in Chili Davis and he's someone who really values not necessarily loading up on power who really likes using the all fields and that a lot of times means you know really standing in on the plate being able to cover a lot of pitches being able to reach for that outside pitch and just kind of smack it the other way. And, you know, the closer to our, the closer you are to the plate, the more likely you are to get hit by a pitch. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm curious to see how it plays out, especially with uh, quite a few close calls on the, on the non-broken hands. Um, but it's definitely something worth monitoring for sure. Rich, any outstanding Thank issues you want to tackle? No, I, I think um, Tim hit the one that was on my mind because every now and then I'll fool myself into thinking that maybe when it's only it's not going to cost a draft pick, they'll sign Keuchel or Kimbrel. But but then I it immediately hits me they're not doing that they're they're not and, and Tim kind of you know uh, framed that up really well that it, it's, it's just not going to happen and we have to forget about it and, and we have to try to make make do with what the team has. So that was my only question and he got to it. I believe that's the case. Uh, just getting back to number 24, I'll make this very quick. Uh, it all centers around Willie Mays. There's players who played with the Mets prior to Willie Mays' arrival, most notably Archansky, Ken Boswell, and Ed Charles. After Willie Mays, three players have worn the number. Uh, we'll we'll do away with Kelvin Tor, uh, Tor excuse me, Kelvin Torbay. Uh, the issues are with Ricky Henderson and Robinson Cano. Now we all know Joan Payson is the matriarch of the Mets, and, and uh, I, Sam, it was then Donald Grant who traded for Willie Mays as a Mother's Day gift for Joan Payson, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I actually did not know that uh, that tidbit, that specific tidbit, but, you know, that's, it, it, it coincided. Way, that's the way I'm recalling the anecdote. Uh, in any and, event, and, again. Yeah, no, I was just going to say in terms of 1972, it coincided, I think, you know, uh, within the month of, of, within a month of Gil Hodges' death, Willie Mays was on the team, and um, it, it it was probably a big emotional boost at the time for, for a team reeling from his death. And, and again, the, the predominant issue is indeed Willie Mays. Uh, and he only had a brief career here with the Mets, but obviously had a longer career in New York City. Uh, I don't appreciate the fact that they gave the number or allowed Robinson Cano to wear the number. Uh, I don't appreciate the fact that Ricky Anderson wore the number. Uh, you know, they put it in the closet after Willie Mays retired. Uh, so the question is, you know, should the Mets proceed forward with uh, some kind of, uh, I, I guess, retiring his number or some kind of tribute at City Field? And I'll, I'll, I'll start with you, Tim. Uh, I'm asking you to delve into your inner Mets fandom, if you have any, as a professional mm-hmm. writer, that is. In terms of whether they should retire 24? Yeah, this is the way we, you know, we usually end shows. Again, we coincide the uniform number with our episodes. This is 24. And the list sure, of number sure. 24 in Mets history is rather short. You know, there's some uh, anniversary types from the 69 Mets, but it really centers around Willie Mays, his history with the Mets, and giving out that number. Well, I think it, I know that it popped up a little bit when the Mets made the Diaz Cano trade in December and, you know, what number Cano was going to get. I know it is a sensitive issue for parts of the fan base, but I think Cano is as good a player that you can give that number two of anybody in terms of the Mets obviously like their stars. They like bringing in uh, oftentimes past their prime stars who get that name recognition, and Cano obviously fits that bill, especially in New York. Um, but also – he likes 20, he wears 24 because it's the reverse of 42 and he's named after Jackie Robinson. So um, I think that's a, a fascinating way for an individual to uphold that legacy and honor one of the, you know, most important baseball players in the game's history. Um, so I, I have no problem with, with Robinson Cano in particular wearing 24. Um, I, I think that's a, a very sound decision from the franchise. So then let's revisit your opinions about number 24. Well, first of all, in terms of Willie Mays, I am so thrilled that he, that I I can say and see him uh, in Mets uniform, that I can say he wore a Mets uniform. And he also uh, was a big part just in terms of, of the veteran presence, if not the actual hitting, of the 1973 pennant winning team. Um, he also has, you know, unfortunately it's kind of a negative uh, uh, moment in the World Series when he's arguing with a, a called out at home plate. Uh, uh, but but it's also an iconic moment of him putting his arms up and, and shrugging. And honestly, if you look at the play, I think he, I think uh, I forget who crossed the plate, but I'm pretty sure he was safe. I think it might have been Bud Harrelson. Bud Harrelson. Thank you. Exactly. There we go. So. I, I love the fact – I have a bobblehead Willie Mays in a Mets uniform. I love the fact that he finished his career in a, a, a Mets uniform, much like 
uh, uh, Hank Aaron, a contemporary, finished in his original hometown of Milwaukee. And, yeah, I, I, in terms of the actual retiring of it, I, I don't know. You know, they're so tight about these retire, retiring numbers that I, I – I, I think it's the same thing about like like possibly retiring Yogi Berra for number eight and uh, you know coinciding that with Gary Carter. Um, I think Gary Carter would deserve it more so than Yogi Berra, but it, it's you know every fan has their their opinion as to what should be the the retired number other than David Wright who is going to be coming up. Uh, you know, I, I think Keith has. I think somebody has a point about Keith, especially because I believe he should be a Hall of Famer. Nobody ever looks at defense, and especially he hit 300 majority of the time over the over his career. It's pretty sound with 11 Gold Gloves straight or something along that nature. Um, I I think that uh, yeah, I, I you know whether or not the number is retired. I love the fact that Willie Mays played uh, for the New York Mets, and I also liked uh, what Tim brought up about the reverse uh, of of uh, Jackie Robinson in terms of Robinson Cano. Now, Rich, really, this is no different than the Milwaukee Brewers honoring Hank Aaron. He played with the Brewers for two years, but he was a lifelong Milwaukee Brave, and Atlanta Brave, too. Uh, no different. So let's revisit your opinion, Rich. Well, you know, Mike, you and I usually agree, but I think this is one where we may disagree a little bit because I, I, I see the Mets. I remember when they got Willie Mays. You know, I was a little, little kid, of course, and um, and it was like, okay, but he's not very good anymore. And, you know, and, and obviously with all respect to one of the best players ever brought a baseball uniform. But when the Mets had Willie Mays, it was, it was kind of ceremonial at that point. I remember that – the, the talk was so he could finish his career in New York, which is a great thing. But he, you know, he, he did his work somewhere else. He did his work mostly as a San Francisco Giant, and even even as a New York Giant. He, he isn't an iconic Met. He was brought back so he could end his career in a National League city in New York, a National League team in New York. And, and that's great, and it was the right thing to do in all of that. But his time with the Mets was kind of cosmetic, in my opinion, and I, I don't believe you should retire guys' numbers for that kind of a reason. Um, and I know that might come off as insensitive, but, but that's the way I see it. I, I see it as, you know, he had two seasons with them, a season and a half with the Mets, season two-thirds, and he had eight home runs in 72, six home runs in um, in 73. He hit 267 in 72, 211 in 73, it was great to have him and, and give him that opportunity for him. And, but at the same time, I mean, retiring his number as a Met, I don't know. I mean, he, he was brought in for cosmetic reasons, and I, I just can't see it. Well said. Uh, Tim, we usually wrap up our shows with something we call our final word. But before we get there, uh, on behalf of Sam and Rich, uh, I'd like to thank you once again for taking time out and sharing your time in this fan production of ours we call the Metsian Podcast. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, and with that said, I'll, I'll go to Sam first. Sam, your final word, and this way Tim will get the gist of what we do here. Consistency. You know, I think most people in life are looking for it. I'm certainly looking for it right now and, and all the time. 
And I think the Mets need to keep searching for it as well, whether it's on the pitching side, whether it's on the offensive side, whether it's the two coinciding with success at the same time. We just need some consistency. And parity may be the word of the NL East, but I think that the Mets have an opportunity to to grab the bull by the horns, uh, no matter how on paper some of the other teams look. So, yeah, consistency is my last word. Rich, your final word. Answers. Um, we talked earlier about how 20% of the season in, because nothing has happened the way it should, we really don't have answers as to, is this a playoff contending team? Is it not? I mean, it, it's just everything's been all over the place. So I'm looking forward to seeing some normalization and seeing when that happens. Is this team 500? Is it a playoff contender? Is it sub-500? I just want to get some answers. So that's my final word. Tim Healy, thank you again of Newsday. Uh, the floor is yours, sir. I think I'm going to go with stick to which is one of my favorite words and I think is appropriate here. You guys mentioned earlier it's 20% of the season gone already, and which is to say <laughs> there's a lot of season left, and it's going to be a long season. If the Mets are going to win and come anywhere close to fulfilling those championship aspirations, then they're going to need stick to They're going to, you know, through the injuries, through the tough division, through the lackluster performances from some of their brand-name players, uh, it's almost like a, a, a prove-it sense. You know, they can be good, but uh, it's up to them to uh, prove it to everybody and, uh, you know, stick through the tough times. And that's a wrap, gentlemen. Sam, take us home. Let's go, Mets. Thank you very much, Tim. Much appreciated. Happy to. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. And thank you again, Tim. Thank you so very, very kindly. Good night, everyone. Thank you.